Okay, if I have your attention, we'll get this show on the road. Uh, as you know, we're studying the Gospel of Luke in a 10-week series. Uh, I believe this is the third week. <laughs> Amazing how time flies. And we, are, we will be in Luke chapter 5 and 6. Luke chapter 5 and 6. One of the things that you'll see uh, the last two lessons and again today is that Jesus is calling uh, his, his people, the people in his audience to make a change. You know, the, the big word is repent. And uh, very much like this movie clip today. Oh, God. I think I've been in that bathroom. I don't know what you all right, the Gospel of Luke, the progression of Luke so far as we've been going through it, the first five chapters, uh, we start off in Luke with the birth narrative, and you see the multiple witnesses pile off, uh, pointing out who Jesus is, there as a, even as a, his birth in a little baby, and then 30 years later, we witness the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, and he goes out to prepare the people. He's the forerunner. He goes out to prepare the people for Jesus. And he has that great message, as I said, of repent, for the kingdom is, is at hand, meaning Jesus is here. So you need to change your mind. You need to repent of your sin, uh, confess it, and come to Jesus is basically his message. And then you see Jesus coming, and he's introduced there, and the voice of God and the Holy Spirit descends on him. And so they clearly see the confirmation of God from heaven saying who this is. And immediately after that introduction and the, to the beginning of his ministry to that big crowd there at the Jordan River, Jesus then goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And you see the temptation of Jesus. And it's all about revealing, proving that Jesus is sinless. He's 100% man, so he's able to be tempted. He feels the pain. He feels the hunger. He, he feels everything that we have felt in our life. So he's just like us in that sense. And also he, he bleeds and he feels pain just like we do. Uh, but on the other hand, because he's also God in the flesh, he is infinitely able to resist sin so he is the sinless uh, man who will die on the cross for our sins that makes his vicarious sacrifice uh, perfect for us him being sinless and it's proven there and then we see in Luke chapter 4 uh, after after his temptation then he goes up into the Galilee and begins his Galilean ministry and we see him in uh, his hometown of Nazareth. And I think the point that this is placed right where it is, and we see the rejection by his own townspeople where he grew up, people who know him, know his family, is because it, it's as if Nazareth represents Israel. Nazareth represents Israel in the sense that they should receive him, they should believe in him, but they don't. They reject him. And so in that sense, uh, we're surprised, we're shocked, but in the same way, we're going to be surprised and shocked when the whole nation of Israel eventually rejects him. Not the whole nation, but the leadership in the nation. Uh, and so we see, uh, we're introduced to that topic, that theme in the very beginning. 
And then Jesus goes out into the Galilean area up there around the Sea of Galilee. And he says he's doing three things. He's teaching with all authority. He's fulfilling prophecy. And he's doing many miracles. All of those, three of those then proving who Jesus is. He's the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, who's going to come into the world to save us from our sins and then set up the kingdom of God. And so uh, Luke's gospel makes clear who Jesus is and what his mission is, what God has sent him to do. So today we see in uh, chapter 5 the continuation of that Galilean ministry as Jesus goes from town to town. And we see that because of the rejection in Nazareth, he's moved his his, uh, headquarters to Capernaum which is just there on the uh, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a little fishing village. If you've been to Israel, you've certainly been there, and you've seen uh, the house of Peter. And uh, we're going to come back to this, but that house of Peter is probably where one of the miracles, we're looking at four miracles today, one of the miracles actually takes place there at that house of Peter that that you see the signs and everything there, uh, having found it in Uh, ancient Capernaum. So Jesus is going to call, in in today's lesson in chapter 5, a a core group of disciples. Uh, The way the kingdom is going to begin is very small. Jesus is going to call this core group to come to him and to represent him. So the kingdom is going to begin with them, and then it's going to grow. It's going to grow into a handful of people uh, by Acts uh, chapter 115, after Jesus ascends to heaven, you see 120 people there uh, in Jerusalem, in the upper room, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And then, of course, that 120 persons uh, in a short uh, while is going to turn into thousands. And then those thousands will go out and preach the gospel, and it'll turn into millions. So, Uh, This is God's way of reaching the world through people. He could do it uh, any way he wants. He could do it miraculously. He could like part the oceans or something and call everybody and make himself known miraculously. But God has chosen to reveal himself through us, through people. So Jesus is going to come and call this core group of disciples at the beginning of his ministry. And we see the, uh, some of the main players here in chapter 5 are Peter and his, uh, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. And then their partners in the fishing business, which are James and John Zebedee. Not John the Baptist, but a different John who will be one of the apostles. And they're all in the fishing business there on the Sea of Galilee. And, and Jesus will give them what I would call an effective call. He's not just calling them. They're going to come. I mean, Jesus is going to get their attention, and they will come, and it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't come and follow him. So to affect that, Jesus is going to do a miracle. Now, we normally think of Jesus doing miracles out of compassion. You know, he had compassion on people and love, and he mercifully helped them. But actually, as you study the miracles, you'll see that most of them were done to teach, to teach the the disciples primarily, but also uh, to make lessons for the crowd and what have you. So this also, this miracle today, is for the benefit of those disciples 
Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John to come and, and follow him completely. It's interesting that before they had been at the Jordan River when Jesus was baptized, they were there. They, they saw the Holy Spirit descend. They heard the voice of God. They recognized Jesus as the Christ, and they believed in him. You can see that if you read John chapter 1. They believed in him then. But, you know, what do we all do? You know, we, we, on the weekends we go to church and we hopefully have a pleasant experience, but then what do you do? You go back home to your family and your home, and the next day you go to work and your business or whatever activities that you have. It's like you return to your own world when you do that. Uh, so uh, before, you might say they were volunteers, right? Volunteers. Now, volunteers are extremely necessary to all ministries and, and all charity organizations, so they're a wonderful thing. But I, I looked up the, the word volunteer in, in Webster's, and it says, a person who performs a service without pay on a temporary basis. And it comes from the Latin word that we get uh, voluntary, which means done out of one's own choice. And so the 12 apostles are going to choose to follow him. But as you see the story, it'd be uh, first and foremost, it was Jesus' choice. Jesus chose them first and called them uh, into this, this collective uh, uh, ministry that he was going to have with them and use them uh, to go out and spread the gospel. So it was primarily a choice of Jesus. And I say that, make that point, because our calling is primarily a choice of Jesus. He initiates uh, us believing and us coming to serve him as well. No longer... Would these disciples, uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John, no longer would they be like volunteers where they would go back home to their own, own uh, activities and what have you. From now on, they would be completely sold out to Jesus and be, uh, you could say, it says in the text, they left everything and followed him. So the life changed for them right here in chapter 5 of Luke. And what I want to ask you, and I'm not going to answer it yet, I'm going to come back to it, but I want you to be thinking about, because I'm going to come back, the answer to this question. In what sense is our calling, your calling and mine, in what sense it is, is it a leave everything and follow me? That's the message he gives to his disciples and, and these 12 apostles, leave everything and follow me. What sense is that same calling come to us obviously we're not like uh, Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John uh, we're not called to you know to to do what they did uh, our calling is somewhat different but it's also got some things in common with it so think about that what what is that uh, and we'll come back to that obviously we're not all called to be missionaries to China or India or whatever uh, and we're not meant all, all of us meant to leave our family or our businesses or our home or our activities. So in some sense, though, we are called to follow him. Now, in the uh, story in Luke chapter 5, you can see it came about while the multitude were pressing. So we're already been told that Jesus is going about all the towns and villages in the Galilee. And 
he is on the northwest shore, probably pretty close to Capernaum of the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching, and there's a huge crowd. Look at verse 1. It came about that while the multitude were pressing around him. So there's such an incredible crowd following him that it's like you can almost feel the claustrophobia. They're pressing in, you know, and the people in the back can't see him or hear him because there's so many people so close to him. And so Jesus gets this great idea. The, the seas, the lake is right there. So he'll get in a boat and move out, you know, who knows, you know, 15 to 20 feet into the water and set an anchor. And that'll give him some space. Also, the Sea of Galilee is a very unique lake. I don't know why they call it the sea. It's really a lake. It's a natural lake. And the hill rises above it. Just about wherever you are, you've got the Sea of Galilee. And then the, and then the land goes up kind of in a hill structure. And just about that whole northwest side forms an uh, amphitheater, you might say. So Jesus could stand down there by the shore and look up at this whole crowd of people as you would in like the Cotton Bowl or, or whatever. I mean... And they could hear him. It was a, a, an amphitheater type effect in uh, sending his voice, bouncing his voice back to them. So he did that. He went out in the boat. You could call it the first uh, floating pulpit. Uh, that <laughs> he was out there preaching and teaching. Just a few facts about the Sea of Galilee so you realize how unique it is. It's a large freshwater lake. It's completely natural. You know, all the lakes here in da Dallas area and in Texas, you know, all the lakes I know of in the United States are man-made just about. You know, you build a dam on a river and you back it up and you have this lake that's man-made. The Sea of Galilee is completely natural. There's no dam. And what makes it uh, natural is it's 650 feet below sea level. So the Jordan River flows into it, comes off Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet high. And you probably didn't know that uh, Israel had a mountain in it, but on the very far uh, part of Israel, there's Mount Hermon. And they actually have a ski slope up there, if you can believe that. And the snow melts, and it comes down. And as it runs off, it forms the Jordan River up on the north, and it flows down into the Sea of Galilee, which is about 650 feet below sea level. So it just collects there. And when it fills up, it flows out the south side, again uh, forming the Jordan River going south, and the Jordan River goes all the way down into the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is about uh, 150 feet deep out in the middle. And as I said, it's surrounded by hills. It's about 13 miles long and about 7 miles wide. Uh, and the, in the text, it calls it the Lake of Gennesaret because that was a Greek city that was on the Sea of Galilee. And Luke is Greek. You know, it's important to know, you know, who these guys are. Uh, trivia question if somebody said, uh, what is the only book in the Bible written by a Gentile? Luke, <laughs> this is not a trick question. <laughs> it's Luke. Of course, he also wrote the book of Acts. So, uh, both of those books he was the author of, so he's the only author. Uh, and so Luke is calling it by, by a Greek name for his audience, for a little town there on that lake. But it's the Sea of Galilee that he's talking about. And because of the water... Uh, freshly flowing in all the time from the Jordan River. It would be cool, and it would be movement, have movement and be very oxygenated. The fishing business was always good. There was always a lot of fish in the Sea of Galilee, still 
still is. And so they were in the fishing business, and most of the people on that side of the Sea of Galilee were involved one way or another in fishing. Uh, but these four guys, uh, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were in the fishing business together. They were partners. They had a couple of boats. And they would go out fishing at night because it was cooler, and the fish would come up to the surface, and they would put out these nets. Now, these nets, it's important to the story to understand what we're looking at here. This was no easy deal. These were drag nets that had corks on the top of the net and weights on the bottom. And they were about, there's about a thousand feet of these nets that they would put out between the boats in kind of an arc, and then that by hand, they would haul this net in, okay? And it was about, excuse me, I said 1,000 feet, it's about 1,000 pounds. It's about 300 feet long probably and about 1,000 pounds these nets are. And they laboriously put that out, drug it in by hand, and move a little bit, put it out again. They did that all night. They did it all night. No fish, not even one. Who knows where these fish are? If they're all gone, they've already been fished out, but they're not here. That's the one thing they were sure of. Peter and, and uh, his, his partners were sure. There's no fish up here. I don't know where they are, but they're not here because we have put that net out all night long and no fish. They're worn out. They have pulled their boats up to the shore, gotten the nets out of the boats, laid them out to dry and then they clean them you know they take all this then they're folding them up to store so they'll be ready for the next night so they're not far away as Jesus is teaching this crowd and they're probably listening even to what Jesus is saying out there and so in verse 2 it says that Jesus saw the two boats lying at the edge of the lake these that belonged to Simon Peter and his partners uh, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. So Jesus gets into one of the boats, verse 3, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down, Jesus sat down, and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. So this great teaching ministry. As I said, Jesus was going about the Galilee, fulfilling prophecy, a teaching with authority, and doing miracles, all of which... Uh, the prophets had predicted the Christ would do. So he fulfilled everything. And he got in, uh, excuse me, verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, when he finished what he was teaching about, he yells over to Simon, hey, I can see you didn't get any fish, so put out into the deep water, put the boats back out, gather the nets up, put them in the boat, go back out there and let down your nets for a catch. Now think who Jesus is. He's a carpenter. These guys are professional fishermen. And they're probably thinking, well, this poor guy doesn't know anything about fishing. And uh, we, you know, there's no way. We're just wasting our time doing this. But they probably rolled their eyes and shrugged their shoulders, you know, very reluctant, as you can imagine. But just out of respect of Jesus, they went ahead and obeyed him and went out there. Luke doesn't give us any details about any kind of extended conversation, but I imagine they had one. And so in verse 5, Simon answered him and says, Master, we worked hard all night, caught nothing, but if you insist at your bidding, I will let down the net. So they went through all that work to get those nets back in the boat, to go out into the lake, put that huge net back out, and then start to haul it back in. 
So uh, it, it's, it's this great vision and, and audible experience, not only of the, the four uh, would-be apostles, but the whole crowd. Remember, he's teaching a huge multitude, and they're all sitting on the hill there overlooking this. So when Jesus tells them to go out, these guys are all up there in the crowd, thousands of people probably going, wonder what he's up to here. wonder what they're going to do now. What is this all about? Why are we sitting here in anticipation? Why are we waiting on whatever's going to happen? So they're watching with interest. And verse 6 says, And when they had done this, so he cuts right to the chase. When they had done this, what happened? They enclosed a great quantity of fish. How, how many? How big? How awesome was this miracle? So big, so many fish, that their nets began to break. So they, they called for the other boat to come over quickly so they could empty in that boat as well, which they did. They signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats, so many fish, that the boats began to sink. And that's a lot of fish. That's a huge miracle. And you can imagine their reaction. Wow. We were out all night with nets. It's not like when you were fishing and you'd throw that cork in there with a little minnow or a worm on it and stare at the cork all day. <laughs> that's my experience with fishing. It's not like that at all. They put nets out, and they were dragging the whole area. And there's just no fish out there. So they're shocked and amazed. And, and you can imagine if you, whatever business you're in, you probably have always wanted your, you know, we have the saying, when my ship comes in, you know. And we're all looking for that uh, bull market and whatever it is we do. We're looking for the big payday, the bonanza. We're all hoping that whatever we own, the price of it goes way up, you know. And they, bam, they got it. This was the big payday. This was the bonanza, the big catch. Finally, we've been fishermen all of our life, hoping we get a big haul like this. And fortunately, the price of fish is way up. And now we've got two boatfuls of fish, thousands of pounds. We're rich. <laughs> and if you watched the NFL game yesterday, you probably... Uh, had saw several times the guys, uh, you know, score a touchdown. Or nowadays they just get a tackle. They get a tackle and they jump all around and dance and pound their chest and point up to heaven and everything. So I imagine the that if this was you or I or one of those NFL players, what would they do when they got up to the shore with their big haul, their big catch? They jump out, do one of those dances, pound on their chest, point up. It's about me. I'm the greatest fisherman ever. And they'd take a fish and spike it. <laughs> and then you'd immediately start thinking, this is so awesome. I'm going to write a book. I'll get a ghostwriter. It'll be a bestseller. I'll go on the book tour. I'll get on Oprah. She'll promote my book. And then I'll sell the movie rights. Yes. I'll be rich, <laughs> seven figures at least. That's what you might think. That's might maybe what we would do. What did Peter do? What did his 
guys do. Look at this. Just the opposite. But when Simon Peter saw what had happened, he was there in the boat with Jesus. He fell down at Jesus' feet, probably on shore, excuse me. He fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This reaction was very much like all the authors of the Bible you know, that came face to face with the deity of Christ, the lordship of Christ. And when that just, the full impact of that hit them, of their humanity, their weakness, their sin even. He probably been a long time since he's thought of himself as a sinner, but at that point, he really, in seeing the glory of God right there in this miracle, he was really brought face to face with his own weakness, his own unworthiness. And feeling unworthy compared to Jesus, you know, he said, Lord, I don't deserve you. You shouldn't be nice to somebody like me. You don't know where I've been and what I've done. Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Amazing response to this miracle. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. What we're going to see is that just by this action of that kind of humility, Lord, I'm not worthy, you should... Keep your distance from me because he tries to, in all humility, push Jesus away. What's going to happen? Jesus is going to actually draw him closer. He's going to draw him closer because of that. And it's the same way with us. Uh, God loves the humility. You know, the, the, over and over you see in the Bible, uh, God blesses, gives grace to the humble. But he despises the proud, the haughty, the conceited. And you see that right here. So why did he say depart from me? Verse 9 it says, for amazement had seized upon him, had seized him. And all his companions too, so, the, so his partners with him, uh, because of the catch of fish which they had taken. Again, Jesus used this miracle to get their attention. Use this miracle eventually to call them to follow him in a more complete way. And what exactly happened in this miracle? As I said before, they went back after they had a great experience at the Jordan River when Jesus was baptized. They had a great experience. They believed in him, but they went back to, you know, their lake, their business, their boats, their nets, their fishing. But what happened here? Jesus, you could say, invaded their business, their lake, their fishing, so much so that after this, they never, no longer thought of it as their business, their lake, their fish. Now, it was all about him. Jesus owned that lake. Those were his fish. By the way, you think about it, how did he do that miracle? How did he do that? I, I can only think of two ways. He had to have either created the fish or, at the very least, they were in another part of the lake and he called them over. 
Either way, it's either a creative miracle or shows his complete command of nature. He owns all, all that is created. He created it and he owns it. So by invading their world this way, he makes it clear to them and for the first time they think differently. This isn't my business. This isn't my lake, my fish, my boats, my net. Jesus has just blessed me with it and lets me use it. See? Just a whole different way to look at things from this experience. And so verse 10 tells you who his companions were, who his partners were there. And so also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. Because, you know, here's, here's Peter, Simon Peter down on, his, on, his, on the ground, you know, fearing the Lord. And so he says, do not fear. Why, why shouldn't they fear? This is the living God in their midst. Do not fear because you're with me. I'm with you. You're on the right side of this. And from now on, do not fear, from now on, you will be catching men. So you used to be all about this. This is what your life revolved around, catching fish. But now, hooked up with me, it'll be about being fishermen of men or, or catching fish, as he says. And look what happens in verse 11. And when they had all brought their boats to land, what'd they do? Did they go to the fish market and sell and get the cash? No. They just left it. They left everything and followed him. Can you imagine? They probably had a mortgage on those boats or, you know. But they just walked away from it all. Because something new had happened. A new kind of commitment had come over them. Uh, no longer, in any sense, could they be thought of as volunteers or part-time, but they were all in, totally committed, following Jesus all the way. So uh, before uh, Simon Peter had believed Jesus was a prophet, the Messiah, the Christ, uh, doing the work of God, but, you know, it was time to go back to work, my own business. After Peter had personally experienced who Jesus was, Jesus invaded his life, so to speak. And that's kind of what happens in, all, in our experiences, you know, your circumstances. Uh, you, you may experience, even if it's like an adverse circumstance, a real hardship, a terrible problem, anything that kind of brings you to your knees and causes you to pray, you experience Jesus in your life. And it changes you. It changes you. It changes the way you think about things. So now Peter, having personally experienced Jesus, is a different person. And he thinks differently, has a different perspective. So back to that question I asked before, in what sense are we called this way? Well, I, I can think of three, three things. Number one, uh, hear and respond. When you're called, hear it. Respond to it. Be committed like, like they're committed. Uh, have your priorities changed and be willing to leave behind. I didn't say do it. I said be willing to. God may want you to stay where you are geographically and stay with activities that you have. But just be willing. 
you know, have that attitude of being willing, you know, to leave behind your big deal, your big life, or however you want to put it. Secondly, surrender the command of your ship and let Jesus be captain. Okay, I used to be the guy. This is all about me. But now, I give it up. Campus Crusade has a little image, you know, in their four-law book of, of a throne. And then one at, before Jesus, it's you up on the throne, your ego. And, run, and then after, it's Jesus on the throne of your life. Okay? Same deal. We have a tendency to compartmentalize the Lord, you know. Okay, this is my life over here, you know, my business or my activities, my vocation. And that's that. That's in that box. And then I have my recreational activities over here, you know, hanging out with friends, playing golf, do whatever we do, and that's in that box. And then on Sunday, I go to church, and I feel religious, and I, and I get fired up about the Lord and good about myself and everything. Uh, no. No. Jesus is with you in, in every area of your life, and he's asking you to let him lead you in all those areas and to live for him be the center of your life in all those areas and then thirdly the what your way of thinking your perspective he's calling you to think differently that it's not my boat it's it's not my business it's not my home not my family it's his and i have a stewardship there see it's his and he's allowing me to have a stewardship there. So that's I think that's our call. He may call you to be some missionary someplace else or to follow uh, as closely as them on a full-time basis, but most of it he does not. Most of it he's just calling us to make him the center of our life and to make life all about him, let him be the captain of the ship. Uh, the second miracle that I think we can squeeze in here, uh, you can see in verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. And it came about sometime after this that Jesus was teaching. And now, if, if you compare it with the other gospel accounts, you can see he's in Capernaum. And he's at Simon Peter's house. So if you've been to the, the ruins of Capernaum and you've seen the ruins there of Simon Peter's house, that's where this happened. And so he came about, there were some Pharisees. So at this point, the religious leaders have sent their spies, you could call them up, to check out Jesus and, and what this was all about. And so they're there watching him. Uh, they are known as the teachers of the law. And they had come from uh, other places, to, from Galilee and Judea. And behold, verse 18, he's there in Peter's house talking. The house is packed. I mean, I've got this, this vision of... Uh, as many people as you could fit in this house were there, and Jesus is probably in the center of it, and there's people hanging in the windows and in the doorway and on the porch. And in that environment, behold, verse 18, some men were carrying a bed, on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him and not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. Now, that seems kind of simple and uh, uh, no problem, but wait a minute. Let's think about what happened here. 
the houses there in the Middle East during this time that they've excavated, you can, they can pretty much uh, tell they had flat roofs. And, and when they were built, they laid you know, the, the poles across uh, in each direction, crossed each other. And then they put thatch on that top. And then they put mud that would dry and harden and then put tiles on top of that. So it would, would have been at least two feet thick. So here's these guys go up on, the, on this. On, this is Simon Peter's house too, by the way. They go up on Simon Peter's house. They, pull, they pry up the tiles, and then they take something, some kind of tool, and they poke holes in the top. I don't know how many holes they had to poke you know, to see where Jesus was, probably several. Then they finally find his location, and they make a hole big enough, think how big this was, to let down this whole cot. So it had to be you know, like six feet by two or three feet, a big hole in the house. Think of the risk they took. Uh, they were in danger of, of being arrested for breaking and entering, vandalism, destruction of private property, and yet they, they didn't hesitate. This guy, this is what he needs. He needs Jesus, and we're going to do anything we can to get him in there in front of Jesus. And so they basically just destroy this guy's house, Simon Peter's house. They wreck it. And, and you can imagine as all the debris is falling on the crowd inside, the dust storm and all the debris, and there's words exchanged, hey, you so-and-so, get out of there, you know. And those guys looking down, you know, and I mean, it, was, it had to be just an incredible scene. And again, uh, incredible risks those guys took. Uh, one time I was teaching this and a guy said, you know, I think I'd also uh, take that risk. I'd be willing to come to your house and destroy it too. <laughs> no thanks. But incredible scene. And what really makes it incredible, what would happen if you went to the doctor, a medical doctor, because something was bothering you, you, you were sick or whatever, and you go to the medical doctor, and he does all the tests, and it comes back and he says, you're forgiven. What? I believe I'll go get a second opinion, you know. But that's what happens. That's what Jesus does. They bring this guy to be healed, and Jesus says to the guy, you're forgiven. What does that tell you? It tells you that what is this guy's greatest need? And why did Jesus primarily come? Yeah, the forgiveness of sinners. He came to save sinners. And this guy's greatest need, much greater than the paralysis, healing the paralysis that he encountered, but the greatest need was forgiveness. He needed all of his sins forgiven. So verse 20, friend, your sins are forgiven. Naturally, here's the Pharisees, what are they thinking? What? You can't do that. That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Now the amazing thing is they had it right. They had it right. They just didn't know it. And so they're sitting there talking amongst each other, and they're calling it blasphemy. And Jesus says to them, you know, being omniscient, he knows 
what they're thinking and what they're saying. And I think whole part of this miracle was Jesus purposely confronting them, confronting them in order to bring out who he was and why he came. So Jesus, aware of what they were saying and how they were reasoning, says, why are you reasoning in your hearts? And then he says, verse 23, which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven you or to say rise and walk? The harder thing is to say rise and walk because the guy's got to actually get up and they, so they can see him and it will be an objective miracle. Anybody could just say your sins are forgiven. And then he says, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to the paralytic, Take up your stretcher and go home. And he did. So what just happened? Jesus verified the moral miracle of forgiveness by doing the physical miracle of healing. So that you may believe that this guy's sins are forgiven, that I have the power to forgive sins. I'm going to do this miracle so that in seeing it, you'll believe the more important one about forgiveness. And at once, verse 25, at once the guy got up before them and took up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And look at the uh, crowd. Look at their reaction. Verse 26, they were all seized with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear, that fear of that healthy fear of God, saying, we have seen remarkable things Today. Matthew's account says, we have never seen anything like this. This has blown me away. So let me conclude with just a, a few uh, observations. And, and by the way, uh, forgiveness here, I think it's a, an incredible concept. We're called to forgive each other. Jesus came uh, to be a uh, substitutionary sacrifice for our sins so that we could be forgiven. By believing in him, we would be forgiven. The word for forgiveness, the Greek word means literally to let it go. To let it go. And when Jesus forgives us, he lets it go. Your previous life, your current life, and even in the future, all the sins that you've committed or will commit, he lets it go. Okay? Uh, and don't, for, don't confuse forgiveness with reconciliation. This particularly pertains to us and our call to forgive others. Don't, forget, don't confuse the two because forgiveness just takes you. You're called to forgive, you, you forgive, you let it go. Reconciliation involves both parties. It involves two parties. They got to both agree in order to be reconciled. So you can forgive somebody without being reconciled. So don't get hung up on that because a lot of people say, well, I could never forgive that person. Well, what do you mean? Well, I'm not going, you know, to do this with that person. I'm not going to go hang out with them. I'm not going to sit next to them in church. Well, but you can still forgive them. The reconciliation would come if, you know, restitution was made and that person asked to be forgiven, etc. Then you could have a reconciliation. Uh, and so in the same way, we, to be reconciled, we have to believe. We have to come to God, come to Christ, and believe 
in what he's doing, and then we will also be reconciled to God. And our previous distance from him, alienation from him, will be brought together. So in Jesus' forgiveness, it being unique because he is sinless uh, and he is forgiving sinners. So that makes his forgiveness unique. First of all, uh, in his forgiveness of us, all the law, you know, the Ten Commandments, has been uh, satisfied. Justice has been satisfied based on what Jesus did on the cross. Secondly, our guilt is removed and replaced by his righteousness. So we not only lose our guilt and our condemnation and are forgiven, but also Jesus imputes to us his righteousness as well. Pretty good deal. And then thirdly, as I said before, we're reconciled to him. Our belief and acceptance of Jesus uh, makes his sacrifice effective in our lives. And we're reconciled and we're forgiven. So Jesus is going to continue his Galilean uh, ministry. And he continues to teach with authority and continues to do these miracles which verify who he is and why he came which tells us why we need him so much and how important he is in our lives. And let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these great stories. Uh, they so well illustrate who Jesus is and what he came to do. Lord, help us to uh, just associate ourselves, just see ourselves with the same reaction that the characters in these stories did, just like Peter, just be filled with awe and fear of God, and be willing to do what Peter and his friends did, which is to follow Jesus in its fullest extent. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.